Hey everybody, I'm Andrew Smith with the Rally Call Podcast. Welcome to part two of episode nine, A Seller's Journey with Greg Wolf. We hit on a number of topics that resonated with both me and John in last week's episode. Top of the list for me is that Greg never planned to get into a career in sales, let alone rise to the level that he did with executive positions at SAP and Marketo. Not bad for a boy from Regina. The unintentional salesman with absolutely no experience, but with great mentorship, great enablement, gets the confidence to just go out and try, to go out and take risks and learn and learn by failing. This resonated for me because it's close to my own experience and how I got into sales. And it's so different from what I see today, where I see a lot of people who feel the pressure to act like they know everything, who feel the pressure to be perfect. There is much to be learned if you give yourself the freedom to take risks and the freedom to fail. You don't have to know all the answers and you don't always have to be right because nobody does and no one ever is. The title of this episode is A Seller's Journey. Greg's going to tell us about how the most important lesson in that journey was staying open to continuously learning about oneself. Let's get into it. On behalf of the Rally Call podcast, I want to thank Greg Wolf for sharing his experiences on his seller's journey. Enjoy part two. I'm John Feldman. And I'm Andrew Smith. And this is the Rally Call. And we're live. If you look back, And we talk about the different eras of sales leaders, right? When one goes out and one comes in, you could definitely feel that there was a different game that was going to be played when Greg took that role. Yeah. Right? This was somebody who lived and breathed sales for 11 years in an organization that lives and breathes sales. And there was definitely a shift. But actually, it was really interesting for me to hear is that all of the Xerox generosity in how they treated sales reps in terms of spiffs and programs came from that world and into Crystal. That's that's context that that I didn't know. And what's funny is there's been a bunch of leaders who have gone off from uh, the Crystal days. And funny enough, I would say that one of the things that strings everybody together is that everybody's like that. It's like we used to do these things at Crystal where we gave like three, two, ones and we gave away cars and we gave away spiffs. And that still exists. So, Greg, like that's a, that's gone on to other organizations and that's probably started from you. So so thank you for that. Now, what about we switch into we get acquired by business objects? Andrew. All right. So we get acquired by business objects there. You mentioned we were growing faster. Crystal was growing faster in North America, but they were the acquiring company. They were the ones calling the shots. Yet you were able to elevate yourself and eventually be uh, take on all of North American sales and then move on to SVP, EVP of operations. When they already had their own power structure, their own people in place. Can you tell us a bit about how you maneuvered through that world and how you were able to, to, to eventually take over the reins of sales? Well, uh, as you might recall, when that started off, I was, um, business objects had a, a, had a structure that was multidisciplinary with a general manager over a region, first of all. 
So when, when the acquisition happened, basically I became North American sales leader reporting to a guy who had sales and services and support and order management and, you know, a bunch of different things. And, and so I inherited the business object sales team in the Americas as that was my, my, my turf. Um, so first of all, I was, I, I was that right out of the shoot. I was given that, uh, and right out of the shoot, uh, as sometimes can happen after an acquisition mm-hmm. had the worst quarter I had in my career there. And I thought for sure, uh, there was going to be some serious, you know, uh, ramifications of that. Fortunately, um, I had a serious advocate who uh, was a, you know, formerly on the board of Crystal and a shareholder um, at Silver Lake Partners. And they, as part of the deal, they got some board seats at business objects. And I've been told after the fact that mm. that, that um, said board member, who's a bit of a legend in the enterprise software world, um, stepped forward and basically said, look, this guy never missed for the better part of four years. Um, he comes here and we miss. Maybe we need to give him a shot. And um, completely to my surprise, didn't go in looking for it, didn't request it, um, was, was offered to become the GM of the Americas after one quarter. So no, there was no orchestration. There was no politics. There was no maneuvering. It literally was a, a bad quarter, but a great advocate. And I consider myself pretty fortunate in my life to have had um, some serious advocates for me that um, were guardian angels and promoters, often um, without me even knowing it uh, until well after the fact. And, and so that guy did that there. And then for me personally, as I articulated earlier, well, I started in sales and was a sales first line manager, second line manager, third level manager. Um, I'm probably... I had to do my career over again. If I really played to my strengths, I'd probably be a better CFO than a VP of sales, hmm. to be frank, I think. And um, all of a sudden, I was now in a role that was sales plus all, you know, everything that was customer facing. It was a right challenge at the right time. You know, I needed more stimulus intellectually, emotionally. And that was drinking from a fire hose to start to learn a full PL responsibility and how all these different um, types of organizations interface with customers and how to make this work better. And we need to, as a public company, um, we needed to um, make sure this acquisition proved itself successful. And um, it was an interesting power arrangement in, in the Americas because Crystal was actually bigger than business objects in the Americas and the go-to-market was larger. So we had the heavier footprint. Um, and uh, there was a lot of resistance from business objects because they felt we were, you know, kind of this, you know, maybe the rookie team selling this reporting tool versus this BI suite, you know. And there was a lot of judgment that had to get fought through by myself and others to uh, convince them um, differently, which How we did. How did you do that? That's interesting. It was a while ago, John. But as I reflect on it, I think it was it was a bit of a combination of trying to have trying to see what they did very well because they did enterprise marketing and enterprise, true enterprise selling, um, you know, very, very well, especially in certain pockets of, of that operation where we did, you know, kick-ass transactional sales, outstanding world-class mid-market sales. 
Did you know in those days, I was told by McKinsey, who did a whole audit of our business, um, that the Crystal Inside sales engine was the most productive sales team uh, on a PL basis uh, that they had seen, including Oracle, who they said Oracle was the best until they saw ours, just as an aside. So I, I would try that. and yeah, so I would try and we, we gave McKinsey a lot of money to tell us that too. But regardless, um, these are the little things I remember. But for, I tried to grab what was best from Crystal, what I saw was best at, at business objects, and convince people these things could coexist. And where it really got messy for me wasn't about structure and um, bringing alignment to that and coverage and all those things, which is kind of a sweet spot for me to go to personally in terms of what I think I do well, go-to-market planning. Where it really challenged me and where I think I made mistakes and made some right decisions was around the people. Um, you know, there was great guys of business objects and great, uh, great people of business objects, great people at, at Crystal. And... Um, we had to rationalize. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the crystal people went, Hey, Greg, you know, we went to battle together and therefore you got my back. And then there's business objects guys who were like, look at the numbers I put up. I'm strong. And frankly, I should have your job, you know, a little bit of that approach because they were the acquirer and big personalities, uh, different culture than crystal, which was kind of, you know, I'd still call it, we were a little bit cheap and cheerful in some respects. And Business Objects was, you know, true enterprise sales, much more Oracle-esque than Crystal ever was. And um, those were some of the toughest decisions I've had to make um, was on personnel, and mm -hmm. especially, especially at my direct reports. Um, very, very difficult. And, and I made some right ones and I made some wrong ones in that equation. And, and I let, maybe for, maybe that's why I don't really, I try and not be political, but I, I probably let things more than merit get in my head. And I think where I did that is where uh, I made mistakes, frankly. And, 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 and I, I, likely too, from my crystal days, there was probably some people that um, maybe I pumped their tires a little bit too much. And therefore, when they came in, they thought they were further ahead than they were. And I wasn't frank enough with them. And they probably got caught off guard a little bit. Because then I was confronted with a decision of, oh, I do have a better person here. But this other person thinks they're, they're probably better than they are. And, mm -hmm. the, that, and, and the, the problem with that is then people get surprised. And they get disappointed. And it can get pretty emotional and bitter. And I feel badly that I wasn't experienced enough to deal with that better. Um, and, but I grew from it, but it was, it was definitely one of the harder things I've had to do was assemble the team on that post basis. And there were a number of successful years under business objects, but business objects, of course, was a publicly traded company. Crystal was private. Was there any added pressure on you as a sales leader? Now <laughs> that you, of course, as a publicly yeah. traded company, <clears throat> You miss a quarter and you're on CNBC. Mm. Yeah. A lot, a lot more uh, pressure, a lot more visibility. Um, furthermore, analysts are probing constantly into the organization and business. So you can't be as open with all your employees about what's going on because it could get to the street. And um, it made it a lot harder to try and present real problems 
as low down in the organization as I maybe wanted to go in order to build the right solutions because you just couldn't reveal, you know, everything. So uh, definitely being a public company, that that um, that sort of visibility and then and uh, the requisite transparency that comes from that uh, made it a you know a, a, a bigger challenge to manage. Number one, um, business objects too. Uh, there, the strategy became less about organic growth and much more about inorganic growth. So as you might recall, we, we bought a number of companies. I think it was like seven or eight over that time frame and got into new business areas. And I had to figure out how do we fuel productivity off of acquisitions, which up until that point, I had had zero experience with in my career. And I didn't want to have that necessarily be that visible to my colleagues, um, whom, by the way, I, I'll never forget this. They, we had bought this change happened. Uh, Greg, we need to update the website. Send us your bio. So I do. And I get this call from PR. Um, what is this University of Regina? <laughs> I'll never forget this. And I'm like, um, they go, is this like a British school? And uh, I'm like, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's in Saskatchewan. And they're like, where? And, you know, got through all of that and, and sort of explained it. And, oh, okay. So then I went to the website and looked a little more carefully at my colleagues. And they were Wharton, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford. Uh, and I'm just like, wow, yeah, this, is, this was intimidating. And it was. But some fantastic, very brilliant people. Uh, but my U of R bona fides uh, didn't pave the path for me quite as much as I maybe wanted to. Uh, but I digress. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. What What about acquisitions? Tell me about what was the difficult thing about the acquisitions that happened. So many in succession. Yeah. So many of them, of mergers and acquisitions, failed to produce the expected results. Why do you think that is? Okay, so the biggest challenge for me in that circumstance was signing up to the number. Because the number always had synergies on both revenue and expense. And as the head of sales, then basically, I was the EVP of operations that meant everything customer facing basically for Europe and the Americas. Um, I had to sign up to the number. I had to sell the number to my team. I had to get people to buy in and go, including the newly acquired folks who never want to feel vulnerable or isolated or stuff being jammed down their throats. And inevitably, there was a million opinions about this. So my way of trying to survive that was to uh, try and make sure that I was leading that conversation, not having it thrust upon me by like finance or biz dev or what have you, because they all would have their thesis, but I felt it needed to come from our team and our group. Um, otherwise, it wasn't worth really considering in a tops down kind of way. So I tried to defend that professionally. And then, um, you know, I brought some closer, some people a little closer into the team to help me with this on diligence on some of the, the product pieces and on um, really trying to understand how we can make this thing work in a go-to-market way uh, from a go-to-market perspective in order to make sure that PL uh, synergy was delivered. And it's probably there and then where I, I began to see a big deficit in my knowledge, technically, and needed to surround myself with some folks who, who brought that strength and um, that's where I had the pleasure of promoting and, and working real close with Steve Lucas, sort of my right-hand guy is how I saw him, particularly on these acquisitions. 
because Steve, uh, and if those of you don't know Steve, went on to have a remarkable career at Salesforce, at SAP. He and I were together at Marketo, and now he's at a company called iSims, where he's CEO. Um, he was extremely charismatic um, and, uh, and a brilliant guy, technically. And so I could rely a lot on Steve to help me, you know, navigate through sometimes the BS that would get, you know, served up um, around the beauty of any next new shiny object. And Steve loves his shiny objects. And I, I, he might even listen to this and you know, that's not an insult, but um, I knew he, with the right questioning and, and translation by him to me, we could boil down to what was really possible here. And, um, and there were others for sure with, with, especially with bringing an inside sales uh, culture to some of these companies, because many of them were smaller ticket items. And then we had to go sell through that channel principally and through other channels. So getting a team of closer advisors to go out and help in diligence where we could develop the plan and bring it back and say, here's what we can do. And then I had folks, you know, who are advocates to go help sell it through the organization. Were, and, were there, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Were there, were there any acquisitions that didn't pan out so well in terms of their performance and looking back, what would you change? Um, uh, it's been a while, John, and I'm getting old. Yeah. But, um, uh, we, we did one uh, deal with a company out of Wisconsin that was heavily involved in data quality, as you might recall. And, and there was such a cultural mismatch. And I think some gaps in the technology, um, that it took, it took a, a long time for that to ultimately start to happen. And I think it really came to life even more inside of SAP after they bought business objects than it did before we sold them, uh, sold to them, number one. So, uh, you know, that's one. And when I would reflect on it now, even though it's a little bit of a vague memory, we're talking 15, 16 years ago. Um, there, I think I allowed myself to not trust my instincts mm. about, the ability, about the ability for us to go cross-sell that quickly. So it just took more time than I thought it would take. And I didn't rely on my instincts. I, 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 got, I, I saw a shiny object and felt that we could go sell this stuff quickly. And uh, as I learned from that experience, that rarely works out. That um, on, a, on a rapid fire basis, you immediately start getting success. And what I did learn, though, from that, that I applied, I think, at Marketo, where we did a few acquisitions in the short two years we were there is you need to, as much as you need to make financial sense out of buying the company and setting the PNL, you need to price into that deal a, an incremental investment to cause revenue synergy to happen, mm. to, get, to get people excited about cross-selling and, um, and upselling new products, to get people excited about working with new colleagues, not be threatened or not be jaded. And to do that, I hate to say it, but you got to go back to compensation and key motivating, key motivators for people. And oftentimes, there's a belief that existing sales forces will just immediately start selling it. Um, and, you know, well, here comes your raised quota in the equation, and you got to go hit this new number. I've learned it's worth the investment in the first six months, nine months max. Double up the comp, triple up the comp on those products. Get people excited to learn about them. 
demand learning. Don't allow them to go sell until they've got themselves qualified to go sell that product, but put the financial incentive in front of them so that they go do it and seriously reward it, over reward it and price that extra expense into the deal. And, and, um, where I've been able to do that, I've saw far greater success versus other situations where you just naturally assumed salespeople are going to pick this up and go sell. It's not, it's not always that simple. So Greg, big dynamic change in cultures between you went from Xerox, you go to crystal from crystal to business objects, publicly traded organization. How did the boardroom change and the SLT change? And how did you have to change in order to grow and, and function in, a, in an organization that was, for lack of a better word, like getting pretty serious? Like it was getting, it's big leagues now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, our, our plan for the year we sold the SAP where it was a billion five in revenue. So it was, it was definitely uh, big leagues for sure. The other part of the equation, John, is I now have responsibility over uh, EMEA which was completely new to me. And my colleagues were very international business objects. Of course, was a French founded company with a a significant presence in Europe and a lot of European culture in the organization. So whereas in the past, sometimes I think I kind of traded on my, oh, shucks, I'm from Saskatchewan. Let's go guys and go get it. Um, You know, not a lot of hubris. Um, I wouldn't say that was deliberate. It was kind of genuine who I was. But I think at business objects, I had to shed that quickly because I was dealing with, with a different level of sophistication of, mm-hmm. and experience of, of executive with my colleagues and with some on my team. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, I tried to play to my strengths. And I discovered my strengths rested in PL management and um, creating growth plans that we could execute on and a PNL that um, improved, I think, at or above, you know, what our board expected. So I got very, I, I got very informed uh, on every aspect of my business. Relied a whole lot more on my operations group to mm-hmm. make sure, to make sure amongst our leadership team, if 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 uh, the CEO or the board chair or the CFO were assessing people, um, I wanted them to know that I had complete command of our, of my business, number one, and perhaps do that better than anyone else on my team. I, I'm not going to say I did, but I wanted to try and shape that perception by, mm-hmm. by doing that. Number one, number two, I went and asked a lot of questions of my colleagues because there was a great deal that I think I uh, that I knew I could learn from them. And uh, there's some serious executives who have gone on to do some, some serious things who were business objects, um, colleagues of mine, and not like not at all surprised to have seen that happen. Um, and I, I would go a little bit hat in hand, saying, "Hey, Crystal, we're the we're the cheap and cheerful. You know, we're selling fifty k deals, not five million dollar deals. Um, teach me, help me learn. Mm-hmm. What could we be doing better?" And tried to be very humble um, with them. And I felt, frankly probably a little bit, um, un, you know, undergun to a degree, maybe a little bit intimidated too, yeah. um, largely because of their academics and some of their experience in companies a lot different than, than my experience. And um, I think I engendered 
um, some support from, if, if not a lot of support from all my colleagues there, because again, they saw a genuine a person who um, I, I hope was seen to have been an extremely hard worker, had a full command over my business. So operationally, when I spoke, it could be taken as truth, including saying yes to things and saying no to things. Mm-hmm. And that I, I didn't bring a hubris, um, but brought an intention to learn and, and therefore could have my thinking shaped by other subject matter experts in their area. So you, and, you, uh, sorry, to check you, my ego, I tried yeah. to check my ego, you know, you've had a, a tremendous career starting off, uh, in Saskatchewan with Xerox and then culminating with once again, an exit from Marketo as a senior leader, as you, as you look back on this, what's the single biggest piece of advice you could give to an aspiring leader in technology today that they should adhere to? What should they know that they may not know now? The essence of the Rally Call podcast, John. <laughs> well, that's a high pressure question. Then. Um, you know what I think it is? Be genuine. Be genuine. Don't put up errors. Don't pretend to know things you don't know. Um, be vulnerable sometimes to your people to, to let them know, hey, I need help on this. Let's go get it externally. Or can you help me with this? Um, because if you're genuine with your team and with your, with your colleagues um, around you, A, you'll be a heck of a lot more likable. And people want to work with likable people who are not full of hubris. And, and two, you will get better at your job because you will learn from them. And guess what? They will get better at their jobs because they'll learn from you because they'll listen to you because they're going to believe they're not full of it, but that you're genuine because you're willing to admit when you don't know something or you're willing to admit we have a problem and I don't have the answers and we all have the answers and we've got to go do that. And I think especially for new leaders, having recall being one, um, your instincts is, oh, we got to go. We got to do this. And here's what we're going to go do. And you get very directive. And sometimes you do it for survival. And you think that, you know, you, you start to rely on that instinct and that reflex. And the best reflex is, in fact, the opposite. Interesting. It's engagement. It's engagement. And to drive real engagement, I think you need to be genuine, deferential, humble, but confident. And, and, um, you know, when you see that, I think people want to follow that. I know I want to follow that in my leaders who I've worked for. Great piece and of I advice. Know, yeah. And I know that I don't follow people who present a lot of hubris, especially if they don't have the experience to back it up. You know, they don't have the war wounds. Um, I, I do value those, maybe because I got a few. Maybe that makes me old. But, um, but there's nothing better. There is absolutely nothing better than having a trusting relationship both up and down the organization with genuine conversation, free of ego, totally driven toward maximization and optimization. And when you can get involved in those conditions or better yet, create those conditions and model those behaviors, that's when you get powerful. And, and I would like to think at Marketo, that was a big reason that in two years, we went from uh, declining bookings to 30% growth and more from losing money to making money 
and a billion eight valuation to 4.8 in two years. Awesome. Greg, this has been awesome. This, this was, thanks so much for doing this. And to end it off, Greg, we're going to do something called the fast five, which is just five questions for you. Answer them as, uh, as they come into your head. Uh, number one, Greg, your favorite keyboard player. Oscar Peterson, good Canadian boy. Uh, the best jazz player to ever play. Best case, best piano player, period, amen, to have walked the planet, I think. Your favorite band? Steely Dan. Brought together rock and roll with complex jazz harmonies, made a top 40, made it consumable, and listen to all their albums because you can just get buried in them and love every minute of it. Favorite professional accomplishment? Uh, I would say uh, the two years at Marketo. But not, not just because there was, there was a, a great financial return for our shareholders, but probably more because, A, I got to work with people who were, um, where there was an extreme trust relationship. And we had to forge those trusts quickly with new people by creating some of the things I talked about around a genuine approach and a genuine demeanor to problem solving and was able to empower people there because the environment that preceded uh, mine and Steve Lucas's involvement was very top down. Favorite Mercury product? Excuse. Oh, <laughs> car. <laughs> oh, uh, Capri. Cause that's, that was, I think my second car, although the car I, I bought after I joined Xerox, well, I'll, a quick story. My dad, um, came, you know, came over to my place and said, Hey, Greg, you got to buy this car. And my dad was still selling at that time. It was like 65. And, uh, I'm like, okay, what is it? It's called a Mercury Mercur. And I'm like, a what? And I had no clue what this was. And it was called XR4TI. You guys probably don't even know I about this car. What are you talking about? 2.3 liter turbo four. Of course I remember yeah. the car based on so, the Ford Cosworth Sierra from Europe. How do I not? <laughs> All right, John. Thank you. Um, okay, I knew this is why I like you. Uh, but at any rate, he comes and says, you got to buy this car. And I remember it's $15,000. I don't have $15,000. He goes, this is such a deal. It's such a car. I'm like, I don't even know this car. You know, I, I, had, I wanted a Mustang or you know, something like that, which was Ford. At any rate, he goes, I'll co-sign the loan. But, you know, I got to pay, but I'll co-sign the loan. March into the bank, I co-sign it. I'm like, well, it's a $50,000 car. He says it's good. Truth be told, it was fun for a couple of years and then it broke down like crazy. But I couldn't go to my dad and go, Dad, you sold me a lemon. <laughs> you know, but it was, uh, that was, that was my favorite, um, favorite uh, Mercury, I think, because it makes me think of my dad. Wonderful. Last question, Greg. This is a big one. I don't know if you're going to get it. Who was the person that you rode in the elevator with on your first day at Crystal? Helene Imperial. I think she took me up to, um, to, to see Helen. But it, uh, it was me, Greg. I don't know if you, you remember know. it, but I do. John, I'm sorry. Again, I don't, I don't remember that. It's okay. Your first day you were in the elevator. We were both riding up and it was your first day. I introduced oh. myself 
And you said first day on the job, first, first day, day on the job. On the job. Yeah. Oh, hang on. I talked about my first interview, the first time I arrived on site. Yeah. So oh, that, for, that was you know what, John. I also don't remember, but um, wow. Uh, and what did you think at that point in time? I didn't know what customer advocacy was, so I just thought it sounded like a great job. But uh, these are like these are the memories that you have from people in uh, in your career. Like you think back to things like that, right? And uh, look, first and foremost, Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time, and for our listeners and for the audience. The reason why we wanted to do this is that a career in sales can span whatever you want it to be, and if you look at uh, Greg Wolf and his accomplishments. There's lots of stories here and there's lots of lessons here. And we thank you so much for sharing those lessons so that frankly, the goal of it is for people just to have a more fulfilling and rich career by learning from those who have had them first. So thank you. Well, John uh, and Andrew, thank you for you know this opportunity to come on and relive some days uh, of my youth and our past some glory days, so to speak, and some more recent um, days and memories. One thing I'm, I, I'm particularly proud of is guys like you. If I really think about my career, um, and I say guys like you because you, I did a little count in LinkedIn here recently, and I gave up counting when I got to about 40, literally 40, 40 people who were either sales reps or sales managers at Crystal and who are now Vice presidents, CROs, chief customer officers, COOs, and CEOs. And if you do the math over the Bob J days and everything within kind of this America's group in particular is where I focus this, you know, there's probably like maybe 300 people that, that were there longer term over that, just over those 10 years in those roles, maybe 400. And I'm, I'm really proud that, you know, somewhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 20 on the high side, or sorry, um, 1 in 10 to 2 in 10 on the high side, um, have had awesome careers and are still rocking. And every time I meet guys like you and, and a long list of very, some people in very influential jobs now in tech, including yourselves, um, it just makes me super proud. And I think I'll go to my grave. Um, I've had some good fortune and hard work, but I'll go to my grave um, feeling that that accomplishment, which wasn't mine alone, it was a collective, but we should take great pride that um, that many people at a fairly small sample size in a fairly small company, relatively speaking, um, have gone on to impact enterprise software. And I'm really proud of guys like you and this rally call where you're sharing the wealth and knowledge is awesome. And thanks for doing it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Greg. If you like the show, follow us on LinkedIn. We're the Rally Call. Follow us on Spotify, on Apple. Share the word. Let's get it out. There's a sales revolution coming and it's starting with the Rally Call. The Rally Call is produced by Scott Switzer.